Thanks, Jeff and the team. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to kind of shift gears here and move into just uh, looking at a passage out of God's Word here. If you're new, we've been going through a letter that's written to uh, a number of Christians that were in Rome by Paul. The letter is called Romans, um, and we've, we've been in it uh, a number of weeks here. We're in chapter 3, and just kind of going through it section by section, and so we're, we're at the next section here, and uh, before we begin, I just want to play a quick game. Um, it's only a one-question game, so you've got to blurt out the answer as soon as you know it. It's going to come quick, uh, but it, it's name that TV show, okay? So we're going to play something for you, and, and as soon as you think you know what it is, just, just blurt it out. So on the count of three, one, two, three. That all came at once. I didn't hear one voice stand out. So we all know it. Play it again. Play it again. I love that sound. Isn't that a great sound? Law and Order. It's, it's a TV show. Um, if you've never seen it, yeah, well, it's not going to go down in the history of TV as some phenomenal show, but it's a show about law and order. So the police and the court system. And every scene change, you always get this sound right here. Oh, he's not looking at me. Oh, that's just so bad. But you'll hear it more throughout the, the sermon, and we're going to play it through because this, this message today is about, um, it has elements of a court scene and at least one thing that happens in courts, and it's this word, I object, right? And everybody kind of knows, okay, you, you, you go into a court and, and lawyers are supposed to be able to present evidence according to rules, and if something gets presented or evidence is presented in such a way that violates the, the rules of presenting evidence, a lawyer can blurt out, I object. Oh. Thanks. <laughs> and then the judge rules what? Overruled or sustained. Right. And we all kind of know that. Well, what happens today is Paul talks about some objections that he's faced. Now, in chapter 1, he ends, chapter, well, half of chapter 1 is about the Gentiles are re facing the wrath of God, and, and you know, they're facing judgment for all these things, and there's no objections, apparently, at the end of chapter 1. But as soon as Paul starts to talk about, now you Jews, you also are hip-deep in it, and you're in trouble, you're facing the wrath of God, your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up anger, God's wrath against you, and, and the law's not going to save you, and circumcision's not going to save you, you guys are in deep weeds. And chapter 3, all of a sudden, you get all these objections, objections, objections. And, and really, I think what we've had, or what we encounter in chapter 3 is uh, 20 years of Paul doing this, and probably actually some of his own before he became a Christ follower, some of the objections that he had. And so th I think these are the biggies that he, you would encounter from someone who came from an Israel background or Jewish background. And so we're going to look at these objections that the Jews brought up. And chapter 3, verse 1, Paul, after saying all this in chapter 2, then says, but this first objection being the birthright. There we go. What advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And Paul answers, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words 
of God. So that's the first objection. Pretty short. All these are, are really short. And what was happening is the Jews were hearing this, many of them were hearing this for the first time, and they would naturally, if you'd never heard this, you would feel attacked. You would feel like Paul was out to get you, and that's exactly what they felt. And this first objection is really personal, and it's personally motivated, and it's emotional. Like, you feel the emotion in it. And, and it makes sense. I mean, they, they come out and, and they say this objection. And, and it's really, if you, you boil it down, it's like, Paul, you're against Jews. You hate Jews. You hate the law. You hate circumcision. You hate us. And, and Paul's like, well, hold on, hold on. And he comes back. He says, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the Jews have an incredible advantage. The Jews have an incredible blessing, Right? I mean, he says, look, you guys still have this. We still have this. We got the law. Like, there, there's no argument here about the, the value or the advantage that the Jewish nation has or the Israeli nation has. But what Paul says, and I think if you probably heard Paul, maybe his, you know, just his reaction to an objection like that is to say, oh, come on, guys. Whatever. I am a Jew. Like, I grew up, you know, and, and actually, if you, you read on, there's, there's other letters that he writes. It says, hey, in Philippians, he says, look, I, I'm, the, I'm Jew, the Jewish of the Jews. You can't get any more Jewish than I am. He's like, whatever, I'm not against Jews. We're this chosen people. We've been given his law. Our blessing is well documented. That's not what I'm talking about here. And that's why he says, no, we, we've got the law. And he actually has said in chapter 2, look, there, there is a chosenness about it, the preference that comes. The Jews go first, and he says that twice. So he's not getting rid of that, and he's not throwing that out. So the objection to this evidence that, oh, you know, this, you're, you're against Jews and, and the privilege and all of that, the objection, the ruling is overruled. It's just not true. And as we go through this, what what we're going to find is, and this is what happens here, the Jews are being shown a mirror, and it's really God's mirror held up to them of who they really are before God. And, and you see these objections pushing back. And, and what happens in the court of law, often it translates into the spiritual law and life and how we live. And one of the things that happens in the court of law is lawyers, regardless of what side they were on or they're on, they're, they're there to win and what can often happen is they'll go for a kernel of truth, a technicality, to win their case. Which really, it, when you look at the body of evidence and everything that's gone on, and we've seen this happen before where this little nugget, little kernel of truth over here influences everything else when in fact the entire courtroom, both the plaintiff and the defendant and the judge and the jury and everybody in the court listening all know what is actually going on, but a technicality wins. Like the kernel of truth sways everything. And everybody's sitting there like, Okay, yeah, so you got the decision, but justice wasn't done, right? The truth really didn't happen. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit, who comes to us, starts to convict us and starts to talk to us. 
we start to pull on this little tiny technicality, this little kernel of truth over here and hang out here and go, but, but, but I object because I object because I, right? And it's all premised on this little tiny truth that should hopefully set us free. God once wrote that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God said this in Jeremiah. Interesting that Paul had just wrote that Christ will judge men's secrets, women's secrets. You know, after 46 years of living with myself, um, I've come to understand that I am capable of incredible deception. And after 20 plus years of ministry with people, I've come to believe that you are too. We are capable of incredible deception. Self-deception is the worst. We buy these little lies based on a little nugget and we build a whole life on that little thing. We're all capable of it. God says we are. Who even knows the capacity? He's like, no one knows, but I do. I know the heart. We're, we're, we're capable of incredible self-deception. And we start to raise up these objections as God starts to move in our life. And we point to the little element of truth and that deceives us into thinking our objection is sound. And that's exactly what Paul was encountering. The first one was, we object, you don't like us. And Paul's like, whatever, it's all good. And so here comes the second objection is, we had a deal objection. There you go. We've got to work on the timing. We'll try it again the third time. <laughs> it's hard. We're doing this on the fly, but Tom's doing great. Um, this, the, the we had a deal objection is this. But what if some did not have faith? Were their lack of faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Let God, or certainly not, no, not certainly not. I, I think it actually just goes right. Let that not be true, right? Um, uh, yeah, as it is written, sorry. Boy, I really messed this one up. All right. What if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. What's happening here is, is they're saying that's, that, that's the appeal, that's the objection is well, we had a deal. And so what does faithful mean here? Faithful doesn't, faith isn't about I believe in God. Faith Full is about commitment and staying true to the covenant. That's what it's about. Staying true to the promise. And so he's saying, well, what if some weren't faithful to the covenant or to the deal God made with Israel? You know, is that going to nullify God's faithfulness to us? And what's going on here is an interesting dynamic. Many Jews were expecting God to rule sustained. Because what had happened is they had forgotten half of the deal, culturally speaking. And you're like, what, what do you mean half the deal? Well, let's look at the deal 
and then the covenant, and then we'll talk about it. So this is the famous covenant, right? God made with Israel, and this is just a, a piece of it, but it, it goes to this whole idea of, of blessing, cursings kind of thing. So God is saying to them, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. And read on a few verses more and everybody's like, we're in, all in, family's in, descendants are in, we are in on this deal. And the deal is worship God, love God, blessing, life. Disobey God, walk away from God, curse, death. And what ended up happening, not with every Jew that was out there, but there was this cultural trend always happening within Israel where they would write out or conveniently forget the second half of the deal. And you think, well, how is that possible? It's pretty clear. Exactly. How is that possible? And so when stuff started to happen that was bad, they would be like, that's not part of the deal. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The deal was God's faithful no matter what. And they would find scriptures that said God's faithful no matter what we do, right? But they would forget the original deal. And so they would come around and accuse God. You're not fair. We had a deal. And essentially God had to bless them no matter what they did. Now, not all Israel believed that, but that was a trend that always was, was lurking beneath the surface. And so Paul ends up quoting this. It, it seems kind of a, like random, like, what is that? So you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. What is that about? Well, he's actually quoting King David, which they all love King David. I mean, you know, the king of the Jews, Israel's, you know, outside of his King David and then Solomon. That was the glory years of Israel. King David, his family line was going to have the everlasting line of kings, which Jesus, the Messiah, was born into. And so they loved David. Well, David said that right after Nathan had come, sent by God, confronted David on his sin, and then said, you, you are guilty of abusing your power of adultery and murder. And therefore, this is the judgment that will happen. He lines out all this judgment that you see rolled out. It's in 2 Samuel. David, after Nathan speaks, writes this psalm, what some people say, but David says this, that you are proved right when you speak and you prevail when you judge, meaning this was the deal. This was the deal all along. I agreed to it. I signed up for it. You're right. I deserve it, which is interesting because that's not the public sentiment that people had. David knew that was part of the deal. Judgment, death. And you can hear God say, overruled. You know, we, we Christians still do this 
I thought we had a deal God objection. And we, we kind of put ourselves in the middle and think it's about us and, and that any discipline, any punishment that would come in our lives is just is wrong. God's only supposed to bless us, right? He's supposed to expand our territory no matter how we behave. We, we made a deal, right? We had a deal, Jesus. You'd always be true. And, and God says, overruled. You can't violate his righteousness and his holiness and play the we had a deal card if you're altering the deal, even in the new covenant. You can't alter the deal. Now what ends up happening as we read through this, and I think in life, when you hear people make these objections to God, or when you've made them, or when I have made them, they seem so rock solid, right? in the moment and in our sin and and it's all like oh yeah and it's all on this little tiny kernel of truth and as soon as god comes in and shines his light and 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 all of a sudden perspective comes his and we understand true righteousness we're like what in the world that is about the dumbest thing i've ever heard how in the world did i get all the way and, and embrace all of this life of unrighteousness based on this one little thing that I twisted, it's like, that doesn't even make sense. And sometimes you, you sit back, and I sit back, and we hear stories of people's lives, even Christians, and we go, how did they get from this little thing to all of this? And it's all premised on that. And at some point, you hear about what, they, what their logic was, and you go, well, that is dumb. And in some moments, when you get far enough away and farther away and there's distance and and holiness and a pattern of truth, you start to look at that and just, you shake your head mystified. Like, you can even laugh sometimes. Like, what in the world was I thinking? And some of the excuses are just, you you look at it and go, well, that's just, that's funny. Like, how do you, and, and this is what happens. It starts to get to the point of ridiculous. Like, where are you guys getting these things? grasping for straws. And sometimes in court, things happen that are, that are funny. Uh, it just, it comes out that way. Uh, I remember I was in court one time, and it was because of an accident thing, and so there's all these people there, and it, it, you know, you're supposed to talk to the judge and plead, you know, what you, what you are guilty, not guilty. Um, uh, what's the middle one? No contest. Oh, a lot of us know that one. <laughs> I was, we were in court one time, and um, this, this gal got up there, and she was like a typical soccer mom, just real sweet, real nice. And um, she gets up to the microphone, and she's shaking. I'm like, I just felt so bad. She was shaking and just, I mean, we didn't know why she was there. And the judge is like, so you're here for your speeding ticket on such and such a day, this thing, violating this code or whatever. And uh, he says, you were going more than 35, 30 miles in excess of the speed limit. And how do you plead? And she goes, guilty. And he goes through a couple more things. And then he just kind of stops and he goes, it says here, you were going, this is like, just remember, just a sweet, nice lady. Um, he says, you were going 100 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone. What were you doing? And you could just see defeat like this <laughs> comes over. And she said, my husband wanted to teach me how to drive his stick shift Camaro. And uh, so... We had been doing driving lessons in a stick shift, and I was getting the hang of it. And so my husband said, gun it. Gun it, honey. Come on. Don't you just want to go fast just once? 
And she's like, I don't speed. And he's like, well, I know, you don't have any tickets. She's like, I know, I don't speed. And he kept pestering me to go fast. And so we were right close to home. And she said, and so I gunned it. And she said, and there was a police officer like a block away. And she said, and he caught me going 100 miles an hour. And she said, and my husband, and meanwhile, the whole court is laughing at this point. I mean, this poor gal. Everybody is laughing. And she said, and my husband kept telling Oscar, write the ticket to me, write the ticket to me. And the judge is like, I bet he did. And uh, she ended up having to pay for the ticket. Poor thing. I felt so bad. Um, there's other funny things that uh, happen in court. I, I came across a couple things. Uh, a lawyer was asking someone on the witness stand, what's the date of your birth? Uh, reply was July 15th. Well, what year? Every year. <laughs> Another lawyer asked, did you blow your horn or anything after the ask accident? No, before the accident. Well, sure, I played for 10 years. I went to school for it. <laughs> Uh, another lawyer asking uh, somebody on the witness stand, where was the location of this accident? Approximately milepost 499. Well, where is milepost 499? Probably between milepost 498 and 500. Here, here's my last two. These, these are the best. I'll save the best for last. Right? Uh, all your responses must be oral, okay? So what school did you go to? Oral. <laughs> Can you imagine being in the court? If you didn't get that, I'm sorry. It's really funny. But, uh, and here, here's my favorite. Uh, apparently, there was a shooting, and so the lawyer is asking the person on the witness stand, so you were not shot in the fracas? No, I was shot midway between the fracas and the navel. <laughs> sorry, I just thought those were funny. Uh, uh, so, objection number three. Here we go. Now, is we, uh, let me see here. God can't judge us. There we go. This is where it starts to get ridiculous, right? If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, he says in parentheses. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? So here's the next objection. It's this objection that says God can't judge us. And you think, well, what do you mean God can't judge us? And they're saying God can't pour out his wrath on us because that would be unfair. And what do you mean unfair? Like, how, how is that unfair? Well, what they were saying is two different ideas come out of it. One, because God could be glorified in, in judging us. That's unfair. And, and there's this idea that God is glorified in everything he does. In blessing us, but he's also glorified in judging us, which is, you got to get your head around that, but it shows his truth. It shows his righteousness. It shows his standard. So there was an argument that way that it seemed unfair, but the, the other part of it was that it's unfair that God made these moral demands on us. Like, he knew we could never meet them. Well, the problem with that objection and, and this whole idea that God can't judge us is, is that God's righteousness was always there. We were created righteous. We were created holy. We chose to go you know, apart from that. The law simply confronts us on that. It doesn't change the rules or the rules of the game or anything or rules of life. Furthermore, when, when, when you read through the Old Testament, God's really clear from the beginning. He's starting in Genesis 18. God says, look, I will judge this world. 
I am the judge, and that gets reaffirmed over and over and over and over again, and he wrote that into the deal. There is a judgment to come if you disobey. And it's an arrogant argument that people would say, you're unfair, God. That's, that's unfair to judge. It's unfair to rule against unrighteous. It's unfair to give out judgment. Unfair to even say someone should live or go to hell. It's just unfair. It feels unfair. And that's what this appeals to, is that feeling. Well, that just feels unfair. You ever accused God of being unfair? He doesn't have a right to judge. That just feels wrong. I don't know if you've ever been in a court, but I, I can't imagine. It's, it's not a wise thing to tell the judge he's unfair. You say that long enough or loud enough or strong enough, and, and you'll be thrown right there into jail. Contempt of court, which is interesting that our own judicial system has such a thing as contempt of court. That's contempt of court. That's not fair. And God says overruled. You keep going down that line, you'll be in contempt. The fourth objection is this. God turns sin into good. There we go. Get our last one in. This one is by far the most ridiculous one. It says this. If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. And Paul says their condemnation is deserved. This last objection is kind of like throwing their hands up in the air in this last-ditch effort to say, hey, look, God turns everything to good, so let's just go sin like crazy and let God bless it. And, and, and it's bizarre. They're facing the wrath of God, and, and their argument or objection is, well, let's just keep on doing it so that God could bring more good. And people were accusing Paul of saying this. Interesting, they're accusing Paul of it, attacking Paul, attack the messenger, you don't have to listen to the message. And, and it's so bizarre. Anyone who would come to this point of objection where they would actually say, doing more evil so God can produce more good is how he wants to respond. I mean, you're just way out there at this point. And I've heard people who are at that point of breaking and everything. And I've heard literally people say, well, Miles will just go do it. God will forgive that and bring more glory to himself. I mean, I've heard people say that. It's just insane. And God very clearly through Paul just simply says, their condemnation is deserved. Whatever. That's so beyond truth. It's so beyond 
God. You know, every objection has a kernel of truth in it. The first objection, the kernel of truth were, was that the Israelites were, were that chosen nation. Yes, that's true. The, the second objection was this idea of faithful to the covenant. Of course, God is going to be faithful to the covenant and not unjust, but to the whole covenant. The third objection was this idea of God being unjust, and of course, he's not unjust. And the last nugget of truth here is God could turn even our sin into something good. And of course, God can do that. And that's the problem in our conversations with the Holy Spirit. And here's where I'm going to leave it. And I don't know where you are with, with God and his spirit who comes and speaks to us, convicts us of sin, righteousness, and truth, or righteousness, truth, and judgment. I think I can't remember out of John what he said there, but all those things work. <laughs> um, in your conversations with God, are you objecting right now? Are you holding on to the kernel of truth and fighting him and objection and, and, and it's like a courtroom battle and you will not give in? Or are you, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to speak and you're looking at the deception and saying, look, I know I'm capable of a lot of deception. Lord, what do you think? I know over the years this has happened in my life knowing how much deception I'm capable of and having to sit in front of people who have said, hey, look, you're, you are completely deceived. And having sat with so many of you here, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying we all do this. We always, I see a fight so many times. We fight, we fight, we fight. I've fought. I've been in moments where we fought trying to help somebody see the deception and that kernel of truth that they're holding on to, which is meaningless in the scope of the body of sin that's, that's in front of us. And, and it's what's interesting is that every time in my life and every time of, as we have talked with people and led people, what wins the day is that moment when someone brilliantly has says or I've said or somebody else says, let's just stop. Let's ask the Holy Spirit what to say. And if you're on the receiving end of that, you're like, no, we don't want to ask. And what ends up happening is in that moment, the Holy Spirit speaks. I've seen it over and over again in my life. I've seen it in so many people's lives. And all of a sudden, all the objections are just destroyed. And it's typically one of these things where you know, you, you can literally see the body posture, neck goes down, shoulders slump. And he's right. Holy Spirit wins. He's really good at that. And so this is what I want to leave you with. If you have been fighting God and he's, he's convicting you of things and you're objecting, 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 I just want to ask you and invite you to... It's scary to do, but just to say, Holy Spirit, what, what do you really think? 
Take the objections off the plate. What do you really think? And he'll tell you. Uh, We're not going to have a great response time. He'll show you. He'll do that this week. He's good at that. He's a good judge. He's a fair judge. He's faithful. The good thing is, he'll turn your mess, my mess, into something good. He will. That's the great news. He can do it for every one of us, but it starts with him and what he thinks. Let's pray. Lord, we want your rule over our life, which means something different today, in a different facet, your judgment. Lord, how do you weigh our lives out? I pray, God, that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you speak to all of us in our conversations and make sure we're not objecting and trying to rationalize things, but being honest in front of you and hearing your true thoughts, Lord. Amen.